0: This is The Hindu on Books, a weekly podcast from India's national newspaper on the latest and the best from the world of literature.
1: Hello and welcome to a new edition of The Hindu on Books podcast. Rajiv Bhargava is one of the finest thinkers and political philosophers of our time. He is familiar to the readers of The Hindu as a regular writer in our open pages. We are living through an era of immense political and social turmoil. People have thought the same in many past eras too, but still the enormity of the present is something that we cannot overlook. Assumptions about our collective self that evolved over decades have been challenged and we seem to be in the search for alternative organizing principles. This is true for India as is for the whole world. Professor has writings in the recent years seek to address some fundamental questions about how we see ourselves and relate to one another. For Professor Bhargava, the constitution of India represents the distilled wisdom of the founders of the nation and it offers a moral compass as well as the institutional framework to create what we call unity in diversity. I am Varghis george and I am discussing with Professor Bhargava his faith in the constitution which he considers sacred, and why he remains optimistic regardless of the sectarianism that surrounds us all.
0: Welcome, Professor Rajiv Bhargava, to this edition of Hindu Podcast. So, Rajiv, let us start by asking about your extraordinary optimism in the document, which is the Indian Constitution. Uh, Why are you so optimistic? Why do you think that is central to the
2: formation of our collective? Well, I think uh, we are a very diverse people, not only because there are many religions with uh, many books, but also because even within Hinduism, there is no single book, and there is not even a consensus on how important a book would be. I mean, a lot of people are Hindus, not by virtue of having faith in or belief in one particular book but because they are ritual uh, centered or even when because they believe that uh, there is a certain way of living which is like a meditative self reflective way of living so books are not very central in every uh, even in in many uh, Uh, sects of Hinduism. So, with such a deep uh, diversity, we must look for a document to which we can owe collective allegiance. And uh, I believe that the Constitution is precisely such a document. It is a document that doesn't uh, endorse one particular ethical religious, philosophical viewpoint. It doesn't uh, expect that everybody will live with that particular ethical or religious viewpoint. It's basically setting down some terms of common living. What are the ways in which we can not only live together, but live together in such a way that we mutually enrich one another and grow and evolve as both as individuals and as, as a collectivity. And, and that's what the Constitution provides. It talks about uh, how important it is for people to live freely. It talks about how important it is to live as equals. It talks about how important... Uh, the idea of fraternity is, and it believes that uh, hierarchies are an obstacle to a free and equal and a fraternal society, and therefore undoing these crippling hierarchies, whether based on caste or on, on or, or on creed or on gender, is, is central to the future of the country. And I think... Uh, Regardless of you know, what we currently believe, if each one of us was to self-reflect and be at our best when we are self-reflecting and if we were to think about what the good of all of us would be, then willy-nilly they will settle on something like a document which we call the Indian Constitution. So, that
0: precisely has become a point of contest in, in, in the era that we live in. So, there is a debate now which is uh, fundamentally about the constitution itself. How legitimate is the constitution in terms of uh, uh, as a reflection of the popular will? I mean, there are arguments, none other than the vice president of India has repeatedly said that this notion of a basic structure of the constitution is problematic and at the end of the day, uh, Indian Parliament represents popular will and therefore it can be changed by uh, popular will. So how do we tackle that issue?
2: So first of all, you know, uh, the Indian Parliament is run uh, on the basis of the majority of uh, one party or the majority that is constituted by a handful of parties. The total percentage of votes that any, uh, at any given point of time, the total percentage of votes, even currently, is only 38%. So, by no means can anybody sitting in a parliament uh, say that he or she or they represent the will of the people. The will of the people is certainly not the will of 38% of the population. And even, you know, if you look at the manifesto, of any political party, and if you look at what they actually do and for which they seek uh, retrospective endorsement, you'll find that there is a huge gap. For example, uh, reconstructing the Central Vista. This is not part of the manifesto. How do we know whether it has popular will behind it? We don't know. Nobody knows that. So many policies which have been undertaken, we don't know whether popular will is behind it. And uh, the parliament in any case is something which is elected for five years. After five years, you have another government or potentially another government. So the long term uh, view of the common good cannot change so suddenly and so dramatically every five years. You have to come to some kind of a stable standpoint of what the common good is. And uh, in the wisdom of a lot of people, after two and a half years of deliberation and preceded by a whole anti-colonial struggle which lasted, you know, a good 60, 70 years. We produced this document and it was produced by the finest minds of India uh, during that period. Now, we are saying that their wisdom and what they believed was the common good is much worse or is got no value compared to the uh, popular will that is expressed every five years by legislatures. I mean, uh, you know, the moral legitimacy of most of the legislatures today is, is even though th- there are a whole lot of reasons why they get elected. But the moral legitimacy of any legislature today is, and this is something which I can say pretty confidently, I mean, is very, very poor. So when they come together in the parliament, I mean, look at the quality of discussion that takes place in the parliament. I mean, there, there are there is uh, all kinds of uh, subterfuge and all kinds of ways in which things are circumvented, no discussion. So I would I wouldn't mind if there are uh, you know the best people who are uh, on on a on some fair basis of selection, some of the best minds uh, both within and outside the parliament. After all, those people who are left out of the parliament are not any less citizens than those who are sitting in the parliament. So let there be a body that examines the constitution. I don't mind that. The constitution is only a starting point. It is not the final document. But it's very uh, difficult to subscribe to the view that the currently elected government has greater legitimacy than the legitimacy uh, of... uh, the giants of the anti-colonial struggle who were part of the constitutional assembly that produced the constitution. Okay.
0: We will, I will ask you one more question before we move on to the next question because I will refer to your article, the, one of the moral reflections that you have uh, in this book, which is on the right to protest. So you write on the farmer's protest. So uh, you, you are very sympathetic to that protest and he said that is a right that constitution is provided for. And farmers represented a view that contested which was a decision of parliament, as, as as we are now discussing. Do you think B. R. Ambedkar, who said that all kind of civil disobedience should end, it will be an anarchy, so grammar of anarchy. So everything will have to be within the bounds of the constitution as it was written then. He would have agreed with the with the mods
2: of the farmers' protest. Yeah, well, I, I'll say two things. One is that. You know, this is not the only time people have protested. If you look at the protest that took place in 1974 in India, which led to the Jai prakash Narayan's call for total revolution, you know, where practically every political party that is ruling the country today, or at least the leaders of various political parties, they were all part of that movement. That was a protest movement of a very, uh, you know, it was a, Very large protest movement. Did anybody raise questions about the legitimacy then? Look at what happened in 2013 and 2014. There was a movement, uh, a naturally spontaneous movement of of young people against what happened to Nirbhaya. Or, for example, the movement of anti-corruption, which was, uh, again, uh, supported by a wide number of, you know, large sections of people who are currently in the government. Did anybody suggest to them at that time that this is all against the, uh, you know, this is against the constitution? So I think the right to protest on the streets is something that is fundamental. Ambedkar did express the hope that this will no longer be necessary, but that is only if due deliberation and collective deliberation inclusive deliberation takes place in the parliament and in all public fora uh, which influence the parliament. If none of this deliberation is taking place or taking place properly then people have no option but to go to the streets and Ambedkar wouldn't have disapproved of it. So I don't think that there is any contradiction. See peaceful I mean the right to peaceable assembly is something which is there in the constitution and it is is something which is there in the constitution which is written uh, or endorsed by Ambedkar, right? Uh, So it's not as if, uh, I mean, it would be ridiculous to say that only, you know, only when this would be the old, you know, British liberal argument that if you sit at the table and discuss, only then will uh, the outcome of the decision making be legitimate. If anything else, which is outside the discussions of the roundtable, all that is illegitimate. I don't think that should be taken seriously. I think the only qualification is that any uh, demonstration or any protest that takes place in the public domain must be peaceful. It must not be violent. It must not damage uh, public property. It must not damage. It doesn't it mustn't injure or kill people. Right. Well, apart from a deep
0: faith in the document called Constitution, which at some point I think you even describe it as the Holy Scripture in one of those articles, if I am recalling it correctly. So you also argue that there is something that is objectively good, something that is always good as an ethical standard when we are organizing our collective life. So that is a running theme across the, uh, or, uh, sometimes an implicit assumption and stated many times also. So how do we arrive at that objective good, which might not, which cannot be linked to, to, to the transient majority, as you mentioned, or minority? So how do we have a common sense of what is that common good is? Yeah, so that,
2: see, first of all, in all human affairs, What we call the objective good, or what we call the truth, is revisable. It is not final. It is open to further scrutiny. Uh, You can always come up, uh, at a a subsequent time, we could detect flaws that you were not able to detect earlier. That is the nature of human condition. Uh, We do not have full knowledge We have uh, always, uh, you know, we we are not always fully informed. Our judgments are not fully sound. And yet, and our reasons are never perfect. But from that, it doesn't follow that everything is subjective, that everything is a matter of, you know, his opinion or that opinion, somebody else's opinion, his preference and somebody else's preference. It's all a matter of taste. So we should avoid both this kind of hard objectivism And uh, this kind of shallow subjectivism in human affairs, you must look for a reasonable objectivity, which you believe is, you know, eventually revisable. Now, you ask the question, uh, how do we arrive at the common good? So this is a slow, painful process. It is uh, the first thing is that people should talk to each other. They should listen to each other and uh, uh, they should listen to each other patiently, sincerely and with the motivation to learn from them, to self-correct and also to correct the other if uh, you believe that after discussion your view still happens to be the correct one. So it's, this is not a something that takes place within a day. It doesn't take place within a month or a year. It takes place over a period of time. And all, this, all policies... Uh, That are taken good policies, uh, good laws are made not in an instant, but over a long period of time. It's a slow collective process where, you know, all kinds of people come together. So you have in India, you have an alert citizenry, you have a vigilant media, uh, you have um, academics, uh, you have public intellectuals, uh, you have uh, statespersons, judges all kinds of, uh, you know, relevant uh, experts in any field which is under consideration. All of these people, including ordinary people who are likely to be most affected by the decision, all of them have to, at some stage or the other, enter the picture, provided they want to. Uh, There should be an opportunity available to them. And then over a period of time, you arrive at a decision which you know is the best possible under the circumstances. And later, you can revise them. I mean, this happens in our, in, in our constitutions also. I mean, we have introduced so many amendments. There are laws that were made, which we have subsequently jettisoned. Uh, judges make judgments, and then they retract from them. You know, new judges come and retract from them. So, But at the time that they make their judgments, they shouldn't be biased or motivated in any way or do so partially uh, they should do at they should be at their best they should uh, use their vivek right their sense of discernment reason uh, they should have empathy they should have understanding and uh, uh, they should listen to one another and through that process arrive at some kind of a common decision which they knew. you know in the, at some stage it can it can be Changed. I, I mean, this is the nature of human decision making. Uh, we are not gods, right? Uh, and we we are not clairvoyant. We don't. Uh, we cannot anticipate the future. We cannot know everything about the past. We do not even know fully anything about the present. A lot of factors that we can't take into account. But we have to do our best under the circumstances, and we have to arrive at our decisions. And and we and many of these decisions become successful only if we have the will to execute them properly the success of the decision comes more from agency than from knowledge right so sure. yeah yeah
0: so moving on uh, rajiv uh, so you grapple with this question the 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 the, the two contesting uh, ideas one is diversity uh, as opposed to homogeneity or uniformity. So any collective, as you rightly point out, will have to have some amount of uh, shared feelings, bonding, and uh, uniformity, if you would, or uh, to, to, to be called a community. At the same time, uh, we will have to be mindful of the diversities that are brought into it. So we are at that particular point in our history where we've been told, or there is a significant segment of our population that believes that uh, our uh, balance has tipped in favor of diversity. So too much of diversity, too much of democracy, too much of centralized decentralization or too much of federalism may have done no good for the country and we have to move to the other side of the spectrum to have more homogeneity, more centralization, more collective purpose, which is like very Uh, precise and focused and more aggressive to optimize what is the what is common good how do you respond to that thing and why where do we actually find a a balance between uh, the desire for uh, a a uniform objective while preserving diversity and
2: uh, 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 various uh, 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 other factors So my, my, uh, you know, my belief is that uh, we are not uh, single goal-oriented. We are not people who are single-value creatures. Uh, We cannot have only one idea of the good which we pursue there are multiple goods that we have that we have pursued in the past and which we continue to pursue now i mean take just a, a common example today uh, an ordinary human being is has to uh, take care of his own personal interests the interests of his family uh, the good of the larger community he has or she has to uh, If if that person is doing a job, she will have to uh, be committed to her profession and strive for excellence in in her or his profession. Uh, And and, uh, so doing something, uh, being perfect or striving for perfection in one's job, taking care of one's family, taking care of oneself, because... Your well-being is a precondition for the well-being of others. If you're not, you know, well yourself, uh, you will not be able to help anybody else. So already we can see that we are creatures who are living amidst multiple values, multiple goods. Uh, similarly, you, we, 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 may, we have, a, we have a, a belonging to a religion. Uh, but we also belong to uh, a, a linguistic group. Uh, we have uh, so many other uh, identities. Uh, we have allegiances to many things. I mean, some are international. Look at uh, our cricketers. Uh, you know, the cr- cricket lovers today. They many of them uh, have. They uh, they are completely cosmopolitan in their outlook. I mean, I, I mean, I I know many people who are you know bigger fans of the manchester united than they would be of any uh, other indian footballing football uh, team so you know we have multiple attachments multiple commitments multiple allegiances and we try to balance them uh, so diversity is something which is natural and it is not only natural it is also good for us because uh, it's because nobody will be able to achieve uh, the best in his or her life uh, by doing everything himself or herself. And uh, in order to focus on some things, he or she will have to lose focus on... He must lose focus on other things. I mean, he cannot... He has to neglect other things, which other people will develop much better. Uh, And uh, so uh, not only is there... Is diversity inevitable? Diversity is something which is good for us because if there are multiple uh, goods uh, in a society, then we have, uh, you know, much better uh, um, uh, uh, scope for uh, self improvement from picking up uh, from uh, sort of choosing from different options and. So I think that uh, uniformity per se is is really uh, of no value diversity is something which is natural and which is also desirable now the question therefore that you're asking is is there also no need is isn't there a need for some common purpose shouldn't we don't we need some common uh, bonding some common ties and I would say that uh, there are three kinds of uh, these ties. One are ties that develop in our ordinary uh, life, in our ordinary interactions, which which create uh, shared spaces, uh, and and we should build upon them. The second is uh, those uh, uh, moral uh, um, bonds. That must exist uh, amidst us, uh, between us, because we should be able to empathize with others. We should be care for. We should have care for others. We should be compassionate towards others, and we should be able to, in times of need, we should be there to help the other. Uh, this is a requirement uh, uh, that we that we have on us, not to pursue some good uh, at the cost of others. Not to harm others in the pursuit of our own good. On the contrary, we should also make uh, ensure that we are able to somehow um, help others while we are pursuing our own good. And that is its own ties of solidarity. Right. All right. Fair enough. Okay. So on the the, see, this
0: is the question of uh, diversity versus uh, 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 uniformity. I think on, it is on that point perhaps uh, capitalism and democracy, the the link be, becomes a little uh, uh, problematic because capitalism is nudging and pushing us towards more homogeneity because homogeneity is more efficient. So when we speak about one country, one ration card, one country, one ticket, one ID card, so this has become a kind of a norm where capitalism and democracy have, are at least uh, 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 claim to be thriving uh, together. So do you think because of the development models that we follow, uh, the, 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 the argument for diversity actually become only a moral ethical one and uh, which is pretty delinked from
2: arguments in favor of efficiency? well i think that efficiency is a secondary value i mean you are, you are not striving for efficiency per se you're striving for efficiency in achieving some good and uh, you are not you mustn't only r- rationally evaluate what is the best means of achieving but good but you must also evaluate the good itself you must be you must inquire whether the good itself is worthwhile right uh, if supposing you have somebody uh, who tells you that, uh, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's great to have 50 cigarettes a day and uh, the most efficient way of ensuring that you have 50 cigarettes a day is to buy uh, one ton of cigarettes and keep them in your house and keep having cigarettes as and when you will. I, I think uh, so this would be a very efficient way of achieving your goal. But surely you must ask the question whether the goal itself is worth worthwhile. Is it? Is it going to be long in the long run? Is it going to be much more damaging to you.
1: Mm-hmm. That is very well, well
2: put. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah no, this is the this is the key issue. Efficiency is is to do with the best means to achieve some goal, uh, and that goal cannot just be left unevaluated. You must always evaluate it. Efficiency cannot be an end in itself yeah efficiency is not a value in itself i mean uh, you're, you're, you can say your life is valuable uh, you know a healthy life is valuable a relationship between people are valuable having some possessions are valuable uh, you can say uh, you know uh, 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 enjoying sport is valuable uh, a reasonable amount of entertainment is valuable uh, doing some good for others is valuable Achieving excellence is valuable. Mountaineering is valuable. You know, living life in the pursuit of God is valuable. Le- leading a, a self-reflective life or meditative life is valuable. You know, these are things that you, that you... These are the questions that you must ask. And so the basic question that you... And, and before you start to ask how or does one achieve them and why go for the best means in any case, I mean, I, I don't know if you remember... There are very good economists who have argued against maximising and for satisfying. Uh, it, it's it's good enough to, you know, we should look at means that are good enough, uh, other than uh, means that maximise. And the efficiency argument is always linked to maximisation. I think uh, we should, uh, you know, uh, capitalism that. Capitalism has to be ethically and morally evaluated. Is it using, and this takes us back to the old thinkers, you know, Hegel, Marx, Rousseau, uh, but I'm sure these are, you know, the Buddha, uh, you know, a whole lot of traditions within our own uh, uh, in, in the, in, in, uh, our own Indian traditions. I mean, we will find uh, a lot of people who are questioning the value of how we are existing and uh, finding that meaningless, and looking for other ways of fulfilling, of leading a more fulfilling life. Now, capitalism uh, encourages us to suspend that question altogether. It's already already decided what a good life is. And it's looking for the best means to get that life. Uh, And I think uh, that is one of the greatest immoral and unethical features of capitalism i mean we know that it's it's all to do with profit maximization and it's more all to do with having more rather than being better uh, you know building character and this is something that a lot of people would agree on i don't think it you have to be you know a marxist to to believe in this evil of of capitalism i mean i'm absolutely certain that many religious uh, thinkers uh, non marxist philosophers all of them would 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 also agree on this uh, view, right? So we, I mean, we will move on to another conflict
0: that uh, you are negotiating through these uh, reflections. That is, uh, when does India begin its journey as a new collective, uh, a new ordering of uh, its uh, social, political, and public life? So you you actually mark it as 15 August 1947. There is a start date to that journey, uh, which is continuing. Uh, but you are also acutely aware and cognizant of the civilizational cultural roots of, uh, uh, of that collective identity. So how do you reconcile these two seemingly conflicting notions? One is the idea of India as a civilizational entity that existed uh, forever, and uh, also the same collective which has a definitive beginning on a particular
2: date. Well, I think... Uh... We we should look at uh, uh, the history of any society in the long run, and uh, and also in the short run. Uh, nationalism is a modern phenomena. Nishudus are something which is very modern. It's a product of industrialization. Uh, it's a product of uh, of uh, the need for literacy. Uh, it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a new Uh, imagined community, which displaces other forms of imagined communities, uh, whether they are religious or or of other kinds. And uh, one of the factors uh, which is crucial for the making of a nation is uh, in a community which is not face-to-face, how do you build in this imagined community uh, common ties, common bonds, uh, mutual recognition, and this is done through transport, through communication, through all kinds of other networks, including now electronic and uh, social media networks. This is how a nation is created. I've said in my, one of my papers that a nation is a uh, is a people in 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 continuous conversation with one another. Uh, now, and so I think in order to have a nation, you first must have some condition for the emergence of a common mind a common mind uh, which can think about its past about its present and about its future and a common mind that can think about what it should do and a common mind that can have that can have, that has agency which can act as a people now this is something which happened uh, more recently uh, i mean 1947 is just an arbitrary date because we won independence from the British imperial uh, rulers. But uh, we can uh, sort of trace it back to much earlier. See, uh, maybe late 19th century, early 20th century. Uh, You can also say 26th January to 1950 because we gave ourselves a constitution and uh, for the first time we called ourselves we the people. So, I mean, but this is largely a modern phenomena. But this modern phenomena called the nation also has a history uh, in the, uh, and it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a long dure history. And uh, you can, you know, there are many, any number of terms that you can use for it, but you can also call it civilization, uh, you know, because it's a civilization is a term which is general abstract and which necessarily involves a, a very long period of time. But it doesn't mean that in this period, people were thinking together consciously these are common habits, common uh, mares, uh, uh, that developed unintendedly, uh, unintentionally, uh, not wholly willfully. Uh, but there were some common traits that developed because of continual interaction with one another among small sections of people, which later disseminated and, and unknowingly uh, without anybody intending, they created certain common uh, features. And uh, so there is a civilizational history of India, and there is also a modern self-conscious history of the nation called India. And I don't see there's anything incompatible between the two. I would be very happy to write the history of both, uh, history of, of what we can call, I would like to call it the Sindhu civilization, uh, uh, or something like that, to not to confuse it with a religious term uh, or uh, you know, and, and not to confuse it with uh, other terms that are being used currently, but of, a, of uh, the history of the people uh, who lived uh, on this side of the Indus uh, and who have been living on this side of the Indus continuously uh, for many years. I mean, and there is no society in the world which has become, which has remained static, which means the same people are not being reproduced. There are new encounters, there are new people who come in, we go out, uh, new people come in, there are new interaction. Some come with good motives, some come with not-so-good motives, some come to plunder and to loot, others come to find a new home for themselves. So all of this is happening all the time. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, we've, we've got to get this complex history. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people have written very well on it already, but... Uh, I, would, I wouldn't mind, you know, putting my own statement out on this. Uh, a, a, a history of uh, mutual encounters, mutual, uh, uh, mutual borrowing, mutual learning over a long period of time. Not all of that has been uh, something that we need to be proud of. But uh, there is a lot in there which, which has generated uh, some very, very uh, splendid things. And I think we need to put a, put on record both. Right. So, staying on that question for a couple of more minutes. So, uh,
0: would you, if I were to say that our attempt to sort of uh, 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 overlay a modern nation, modern republic, on a base of a civilizational consciousness, which was a little more abstract, and which was not really demarcated uh, in terms of its boundaries with the boundaries were porous uh, and it was not as defined as it is today so that negotiation is uh, we are still continuing with the negotiation perhaps because uh, we have within our political borders uh, communities that might not actually uh, buy into the 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 argument or uh, our notion of what is common good and that is also a product of this external uh, interaction that we had to have, which was with, uh, with British imperialism. So, the point, therefore, is, are we still struggling with uh, this, uh, our attempt to create a modern nation
2: out of a, a civilizational collective? Look, I mean, uh, if you look at the history of any and we have had self-consciously long history, I mean, if you, have a, you look at the history of any of the European countries, they are much shorter. Uh, American history is even shorter because it's, it's linked to Europe and it also breaks away from Europe. Now, there are lots of things in any of these histories which are, you know, which are really quite repugnant. Uh, and, and many things uh, of which they should be ashamed of for what they did. And... Uh, 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 There are only a few things uh, that they would feel, uh, you know, uh, uh, there are only a few things uh, which will compel them to feel that they have been victims because they've usually been the victimizers. Now, uh, we have, I think we have uh, suddenly built a construct of victimhood around us which is very exaggerated. Uh, and uh, there is no reason for us to do that. Uh, there be, it is true that, uh, uh, I mean, a lot of people had settled in India uh, 2,500 years ago. Uh, Maybe there were some people who were already here uh, from, you know, times immemorial. Uh, people who we know had come from Africa. This is now well uh, demonstrated. Uh, but in the last 2,500 years, we have had uh, people from different parts of the world. I mean, the Shakhas, the the the, the Kushanas, uh, people, the Huns. Uh, the the Turks, the Afghans, the Uzbegis, the Persians, the you know so all kinds of people have come. Uh, uh, the the Persians, so so we all these people, uh, they, they 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 obviously, as I said right at the beginning, everybody uh, everybody did do all good, uh, like all of us some of what they did must be broadly uh, uh, condemnable and there must have been some things that they did which was, which is, uh, you know, uh, uh, praiseworthy. uh, But we are tending to, we tend to focus only on those things and that too in a very exaggerated form on only those things which are, uh, which we find to be, to, in today's times, how, what we imagine to be repugnant, and I think that is a, that is a very wrong, you know, it's a very unjustifiable thing to do. It's, uh, so let's have a if you want to if you really want to understand the past, then do it by by, you know, in a in a proper way. Let's recognize who did what and for what reason and whether what they did was good or bad, right or wrong. Let's get into that assessment, right? But, but just generally, you know, let's not say that there was one golden period, which was in the past, and that is the Hindu period, and the fall began when the Muslims came. You forget about the Kushans, you forget about the Huns. I mean, God knows what the Arab traders did when they came in the, before the, uh, the coming of Islam. A uh, lot of people talk about Syrian Christians who came to India. I mean, God knows what they did, in, uh, you know, uh, they must be—I I don't know whether they were peace—they were must be—they were—they were not war, warriors or conquerors in any way. But uh, God knows what kind of motivations they came with. Whether they were seeking asylum from where they were—I mean, this is not something that is properly uh, ascertained. Uh, but but we forget about all this. We are focusing only and believe it or not, it's we don't even focusing focus on all the all the Turk on the Turks and the and the uh, the Persians and the Afghans and the and the you know we are focusing only on the Mughals. Therefore, they ruled for about two hundred years. Most of the Mughals came and defeated other so-called Muslim rulers. You know, uh, Babur came and defeated Lodi, and. Babur was helping one Lodi to fight another Lodi. So, where, there was no Hindu-Muslim struggle. I mean, as is well recorded, many of the armies on either side consisted of both Hindus and Muslims. So, you, you speak about how we actually
0: have a common understanding of our heritage. So, we, we have chosen... Uh, I mean, the, you, you, you argue that uh, it is also a moral choice that we make. Okay, what part of our heritage do we amplify so, do you think we are currently in a stage, at a stage where our choice of those episodes from our history uh, is pretty damaging for our collective
2: well-being? Yes, I think we are we are creating a distorted memory and creating a very uh, uh, a painful future for ourselves. See, if we keep remembering all the wrongs that happened. And even the wrongs that happened are exaggerated or mis, uh, misreported or, you know, some fall, they, they, they are based on falsehoods. Then, uh, you know, those ultimately, many of them may uh, be viewed as true. And uh, if that is the case, then that will become a major schism between communities in the future. How will these communities live together? I mean, uh, imagine if we were to keep harping, if the Dalits were to keep harping on all the wrongs that have been committed uh, by the Brahmins on them. And if they focus only on that and not to think of a better future for all of us, then I think uh, we we will end up in, you know, big, uh, sort of big-time caste wars. So uh, imagine if, I mean, it's well known that women have had a raw deal all through history. And if... uh, if 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 we reach conditions whereby women are able to express themselves and express uh, plain in plain terms uh, what you know all the wrongs that have been done, and if that becomes the basis of their future action, then there will be just a war between men and women all the time, right? I mean, so we we have to uh, you know uh, this ethic uh, that I spoke about, ethic of living together in the future. And the ethics of selecting what it is that we must remember and what it is, it is what it is better to forget. Right. That is that
0: is a good point to actually move on to another question that uh, you reflect on, uh, which is what is real secularism. You say that uh, uh, the way we've been understanding and uh, discussing secularism is mostly about inter-religious relationship in in, in in our democracy. And you underscore this point that unless we address inter uh, intra-religious issues, which is questions so of caste and gender particularly, we may not be addressing the the ideal of secularism in a fulsome also uh, manner. Would you elaborate on that?
2: Yes, uh, I think uh, uh, this is one of the you see in Europe where the idea of secularism first grew, uh, in all kinds of ethically undesirable ways, Religious homogeneity was achieved in uh, different territories. Uh, So, uh, England became Anglican, uh, Scandinavia became Lutheran, uh, most of Spain, Italy, they were Catholic and so on and so forth. But largely, I mean, uh, those who did not subscribe to uh, uh the uh, the churches uh, uh, of, uh, uh, you know of one or the other of these denominations were either ex- expelled or even exterminated. And uh, so uh, 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 diff- uh, 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 so the interreligious question was not really on the agenda. when the problem of secularism arose. each state had to deal not with other religions but with their own church. And the church was the big problem in modern bourgeois societies because it was socially conservative and it it to be politically meddlesome. So secularism became an idea which had to deal with uh, a, 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 a politically uh, interfering church. You had to separate the church from the state and you have to uh, somehow reduce the power of the church to control individual lives. Uh, and so the so secularism was basically a, a church-state issue. Uh, and the state largely uh, was in the hands of the new, uh, as it became, as it came more and more in the hands of the new individual-oriented bourgeois, commercial free market societies, uh, the power of the, uh, in relationship to the church and to oppressive social communities, uh, the church took the the church took a more eman- the state took a more emancipatory stand. Now that is the context of Europe. Secularism therefore was a fight against what we what I call intra religious domination. Now, if because it was it was uh, within uh, one religion, a uh, problem of members of one religious community. Uh, excluding, marginalizing, humiliating, degrading, oppressing members of other religious communities, uh, members of their own community, right? So the intra-religious issue. Now, if we transpose that to India, what what you have? You have gender and caste. You have the church. You have you have a caste system uh, which is oppressing uh, 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 the lower caste, the Shudras and the anti-shudras. And you have, you have a, a patriarchal system which is linked to the caste system, which is oppressing women. So if, if Western secularism was to come to India in its pure form, then Indian secularism would only be against caste and gender hierarchies. However, in India, the real issue when secularism arose uh, was, apart from gender and caste hierarchies, it was a relationship between different religious communities, because the landscape in India was so vastly different from Europe. We had a nat- we had a profound religious diversity, a deep religious diversity, which no one previously had attempted to eradicate. No one tried to religiously homogenize everybody, right? I mean, we have we had a very we have a predominantly so Hindu population, and uh, despite the fact that uh, there was a uh, you know, uh, Muslims are believed to be the rulers, most of the subject population was Hindu. So, I mean, so the, so you couldn't get rid of Hindus and you were never motivated to get rid of Muslims if you were a Muslim ruler. So, uh, and the Christians were here and the Parsis and the Jains and the Buddhists and, and uh, uh, later the Sikhs, I mean, to name just a few, there were Adivasi religions, and you know, so so profound religious diversity. And the question was, how do we ensure that there is no domination of one religious community over another? In the context in which secularism ar- arose, it was largely an issue between Hindus and Muslims. I mean, this is something everybody knows and aware of, but it's best to state it even more explicitly. So that needs that
0: idea needs to be expanded to deal with the other. Questions of uh, equality, justice,
2: fraternity. So what I'm saying is that while the inter-religious dimension is important, let's not forget the intra-religious dim- dimension. What has happened today is that the minority, its secularism has been reduced to a minority protection device, which it is not. Secularism is there as much to save the majority population from its own fanatics, from its own extremes. And secularism is there to protect ordinary Hindus from the oppression of other Hindus who are in dominant positions. So any any institution that becomes church-like and which starts commanding and which issuing you know more or less issuing fatwas that they should do this, wear this, uh, you know, eat this. So secularism has to uh, rebel against that. So. The intra-religious dimension is as important as the inter one and the both, both these issues must be together. Otherwise, it will always be seen by Hindus as something to do with the protection of Muslims and Christians, nothing to do with them. Whereas, in fact, secularism in the West had only to do with people themselves. All the majority community, that was concerned about secularism. But the community is not interested about secularism, because secularism is something only to do with Muslims and Christians. Right. Right, you So we will
0: move to our concluding segment with uh, one or two questions on how a society is ordered and who decides what is social order. So I will refer to this argument that you make when we critique Brahmanism, it is not a criticism of the Brahman community as it stands today. So uh, what is good, what is collective common good and how it has to be ordered? Traditionally, in any society, anywhere, even in a modern society, there is an elite group of people who actually decide that. Would you explain how is that process happening in India when we transition from a pre-republican era to a modern republic? What of the old regime in the in the, in the society continues in that decision-making process where we merely superimposing. The caste order into a modern democratic uh, system. That same group of people in power could actually remain in power through a new mechanism, or th- there was an actual transfer of power happening, or 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 a percolation of uh, authority happening into lower segments of uh, uh, our society.
2: Yeah, so you know, you so you rightly pointed out that I've written that. Brahmanism is not necessarily anti-Brahmins, and the reason for that is that Brahmanism is a is a is an ideology. It's an ideology that believes that a society must be organized hierarchically, and that there are some people who are naturally and intrinsically superior, and some who are naturally and superior uh, naturally and intrinsically inferior, and uh, and uh, those who are superior, must get all the benefits. Uh, they should have higher status, more power, more privilege. And those who are naturally inferior uh, uh, should get much less of it if they get anything at all. Now, if you look at Brahmanism as this ideology, then you can see that anybody who wants to uh, perpetuate the status quo, regardless of whether he's Brahman or whether he's a Hindu or Muslim or even Christian, anybody would like to embrace an, a socially and politically conservative ideology like this. Because it, 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 it basically says that no matter how you act in this world, you will not be able to change your status. You'll always be inferior or always be superior. And, and and this is the most conservative ideology that has ever been devised. Uh, anybody who is privileged and who is in power will like to embrace it and to and perpetuate the status quo. So the, I believe that it's uh, the it's not just the brahmins, but basically I think that there can be a a Muslim brahmin, a Christian brahmin, and even a Dalit brahmin. I mean, we've talked about uh, uh, graded inequalities. You know, Ambedkar talked about graded inequalities. Uh, Everybody is interested in inventing a new hierarchy, even when that hierarchy is not there, and to uh, extract any privilege that stems from that hierarchy. And uh, even among Dalits, there are these hierarchies. Now, it's this horrible system, uh, and the ideology underpinning it, which is Brahminism. I don't mind if we call it by some other name, uh, just to, but the fact is that the most explicitly articulated uh, statement uh, of, of this ideology is found in the Dharam Shastric uh, texts, which were written by Brahmins for Brahmins. And, and so it is associated with Brahmins. Uh, Brahm, but a lot of Brahmins can morally dissociate themselves from it. And and uh, don't forget that when, uh, when Ambedkar... Uh, burned the Manusmriti, the only person standing with him who was also uh, destroying it at the same time was a, was a Saraswati Brahmin. I, I, if I'm not mistaken, it was some Sahas, Sahastra Buddha. Uh, so, I mean, a Brahmin can stand with the Dalit and destroy the Manusmriti. And Manusmriti was destroyed not because it was a Hindu document, but because it was a very hierarchical, uh, ideological statement. Uh, so, I think Uh, Yeah, I think this is something that is precisely what that is why I think I've said somewhere that the Constitution is is uh, is deeply incompatible with this ideology. If you believe in one, you can't be you can't uphold the Constitution. And if you are a believer in the Constitution and if you take the, the Constitution as your guiding principle, then you cannot believe in that ideology
0: right so we this is my last question I so how do you think the composition of indian elite has changed uh, in the, in the republican era from the pre republican era in terms of caste uh,
2: you mean a, a republic meaning in the since the 1950s 1947 onwards, so let us
0: take 1947 as the cutoff because that is what
2: yeah no i think uh, uh, I think the history of caste has always been not as, uh, uh, is different from what the the rigid, uh, doctrinaire people would like us uh, to believe it, Uh, both on the side of the perpetrators and on the side of the victims. Caste is... I mean, caste must be seen historically. The caste system must also be seen historically. Uh, If something is there for 2,000 years, it cannot be the same over 2,000 years. Nothing remains the same. Everything is subject to pulls and, and, and pushes and pulls and pressures of all kinds. It never remains the same, and that has also been true of the caste system. However, two things within the caste system it is we can say with certainty that uh, uh the the two uh, poles of of the system the, the the positions haven't changed the brahmins have remained and the atishudras have also remained uh, now we, who which people became atishudras uh, maybe the brahmins were always uh, uh their their status was fixed because they were born as brahmins but Shudras, who were the Atishudras, or and even who the Ushudras were, that kept changing. Uh, there was no fixed lot. Uh, that, that was a matter of, you know, uh, if you if you win a war and you had slaves, then those slaves were pushed into the Shudra and the Atishudra category. Uh, and so uh, they were free men at one time, but they now became the Atishudras. They lost their social position. I think the 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 children of mixed marriages were very often relegated to the position of the Atishutras. Uh, So this is something which has not been fixed. Uh, This has kept changing. And uh, I would say that the same kind of... uh, The greater flexibility has been introduced into the caste order uh, since the founding of the republic. Uh, I think in the 19th century, for some reason, or even perhaps in the late century, I'm not a historian and I'm certainly not a historian of caste. But my belief is, my impression is rather, that in the 18th, 19th century, these caste relations became uh, even more hierarchical and even more rigid. And they became associated much more strongly with a religion called Hinduism, uh, which they were not necessarily, which was not necessarily the case earlier. Uh, because there was no hinduism to you know as a comprehensive whole to begin with right uh, so while while caste was very central to Shastrik brahmanism it was not uh, as central to many other uh, uh, social phenomena that later came to be subsumed under what in the 19th century we called hinduism right so so i think uh, things have have changed uh, in the 20th century, um, uh, the, uh, the, the, the remnants of that rigid caste structure of the 19th century are found aplenty in India today. And that is uh, not only regrettable, but deeply repugnant. Uh, you, you find so many instances of Dalits uh, being severely mistreated, Uh, even killed, and Dalit women being raped. I mean, this is uh, completely, uh, I mean, in a democratic-republican constitution, this is something which uh, should have absolutely no place, but this happens. And yet, uh, there has also been a lot of uh, mobility, much more mobility than there was in the early 20th century or in the 19th century, and perhaps i would say that the kind of mobility that you would expect uh, that you ha- that you have now uh, in relation to the shudras and ati shudras you would probably never had before uh, so i think a lot has changed but uh, but there is a huge amount of work that still needs to be done uh, i that's the best possible answer i can give at the time to the question that you asked about you know what was cast in the pre republican era and what it is now
0: Right. So, it's been a fascinating conversation, Rajiv. I have the last final question here. You will have the last word. So, uh, is it more hope than despair for we the people? Uh,
2: I'm I'm sort of, uh, this is always, you see, we have, let's not forget that there has been always in the world Every period in the history of the world is full of uh, men and women and children treated in the most horrendous manner, you know, uh, somewhere or the other. I mean, in in the, the 1960s, you remember, was a period... Which was after the war, uh, there was a, an economic boom. Uh, that there was a great emancipatory movements taking place everywhere. There was hope, uh, which was uh, which resulted from anti-colonial struggles everywhere. I mean, India was full of hope in the sixties. But don't forget, sixties was also the time when when uh, when there were huge uh, numbers of wars which were taking place. The the most horrific incidents taking place in Vietnam. Most, you know, you, Laos was being bombed. Uh, it's one of the most bombed countries in the world. And it was just collateral damage. I mean, it was, the Americans were trying to bomb the Vietnamese and they happened to bomb uh, the Laotians, uh, most of all. Uh, Cambodia, you can't forget, you can't, don't, don't forget the Cultural Revolution that took place in China. I mean, the, 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 the gulag in uh, in Russia I mean all the uh, American Imperial adventures that were taking place in Latin America so I mean there, there are, there, there, there's never we've, we've never had a period when most people have lived uh, with a fair degree of of uh, uh, peace and and justice uh, there have been pockets where it's been there and others where things have been really very very nasty. Uh, so it's in this, I think this perspective we must keep in mind when we take stock of a, a, situation in India, uh, we are doing, uh, this is a moment. I mean, I believe that this is the worst crisis, uh, in contemporary India, but, uh, I don't believe that we are in a completely hopeless situation. I think, uh, i think there the, are the, the young uh, and the ordinary people who are not ensnared by power and fame and who have still got some ethical and moral fiber in them uh, sooner or later they, you can you can uh, you can uh, stifle them up to a point but beyond a point you you will you will not be able to prevent them from raising their voices you saw that in the anti caa movement you saw it in the farmer struggle and you saw it earlier in the anti-corruption movement. Let's not forget that. It's, I mean, no matter what you think of the of that movement and and what it resulted in, those adjustments apart, the fact is that people were out in the streets fighting against something. And I think that is that I I believe that sooner or later, no matter how hard the political conditions are, people will 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 try to uh, find some escape from their current condition and they will rise up against any uh, tyranny or, uh, you know, any uh, attempt to throttle uh, the freedoms of people to to replace equality with hierarchy. Uh, I think people will do that and that's where my hope is. Right. On that uh, very hopeful note, we will conclude.
0: Thank you, Professor Rajiv Bhargava for uh, joining the HITU for this very fascinating
2: discussion. Okay, John. Okay,
0: Thank you for listening to The Hindu on Books. You can now find The Hindu's podcast such as In Focus and Parley on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other major platforms. Write to us with comments and feedback
2: at Sockmed4, S-O-C-M-E-D-4 at the rate thehindu.co.in.